Rob Hirschfeld, CEO, co-founder of Rackend, and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we talk about making decisions, about leaders making decisions, about time to decision, what it takes uh, to make a good decision. And we have an interesting take in this because we also talk about how to sell into situations. Selling is the ultimate uh, driving a decision in your favor conversation. And so we do a nice job mixing together the challenges of making decisions as a leader with the challenges of selling into organizations where people have to make a decision to choose your product. Uh, And we discuss a ton of really great tips about selling, tips about making decisions, how to frame decisions, how to position decisions. And if you think, oh, I am not selling anything uh, because I work inside a company, you couldn't be more wrong. Uh, if you are engaging in projects, IT projects and things like that, and you you are selling them to your boss, supervisor, company, peers, uh, reports, you name it, you need to be able to understand why it is important to move forward and make a decision or change. And if you're not able to sell that, uh, you are not well equipped for being a leader. This podcast will definitely help you. I took, this was a long time ago and it's not the same industry, but we took a, um, a wealth management firm from like, I don't know, we had $350,000 under assets and uh, assets under management. And they're, we grew 700% in four years. And that's when I sold my part. Uh, but they are still going strong with billions of uh, assets under management. So they made that transition from, you know, scrappy. It was really two and a half of us. We had the two of us and a half a part-timer. And uh, <clears throat> anyway... I think one of the recipes for success with us was we never, ever were focusing on, we were always focusing on working on our business, right? To like, do we need to, where do we need to grow? What talent do we need to hire? Where do we need to have it in place? But we were always, always focused on what the customers needed and what our partners needed. So we made Schwab our only, like a lot of broker, a lot of people in our role would trade through a lot of different broker dealers so that they could use each other against each other for better rates. And we just doubled down on Schwab and picked one or two underperforming offices and made them the best performing offices in Schwab so that then all the other offices wanted to work with us. So we were a great strategy. We were super paying attention to what our, our, our values were aligned with Schwab because we were no commission shop and, um, and they were the right partner for us. And, but then also we were just stupid about listening to, I mean, just like sick about, I mean, stupid good about just yeah. listening to our customers and there's no market that changes faster than the stock market. Um, so, you know, listening to their concerns and the new stuff. And, and once we took our eye, obviously we had targets and stuff, but yeah. um the, once we took our eye off that ball and just really focused on how to, you know, completely crush it for our customers and what they were dealing with and meeting with them all the time and over communicating with them, it made us really nimble. Hmm. And now, and then Schwab stopped working. Schwab cut out their whole, 
uh, investment advisor practice, except for five. And we were one of them because they realized that's where all the margin was, it was in the advising. So they took it in-house and they tried to take us out of the mix. But because we had such a strong relationship with our customers, they couldn't get in between us and our customers. So there's still a top five advisor. So if that's helpful at all, I, I feel like the scramble happens because you get focused on your own stuff. Mm. as opposed to when does this make sense for my customer? What does my customer need right now? Do I really understand their business problem? Because as soon as they have a real problem that they know that they want to fix it and they're willing to go on a journey with you, time drives money into those deals rather than takes it away. Because you can drive to be more strategic and more of a um, an advisor. So I don't know if that's helpful, but it's not just helpful. It, I, I, one is super cool. Um, and I, I agree with you listening to your customers when, when you find something that they get excited about and then they sets them apart from, from their peers, right? That's, that is powerful, powerful stuff. It's actually also on target for the topic of the day. Oh, good. <laughs> which is, which is improving time to decision for, for, for leaders. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, what, what you're describing, I'm curious, like along that theme, like, how did you, like, how would you describe the, the, your clients, your customers lead, you know, process with that? Like, did you, were you involved in, in how they made decisions on it or were you, were you facilitating that? Well, what, what, I'd love to hear what that looked like. Um, me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of our customers wanted to trade their own portfolios and we helped with that, but most of them, uh, most of them turned over their portfolios to us and it wasn't exactly like a hedge fund, but they, they had parameters around how they wanted to trade their portfolio and we made those happen. And because we weren't a commission shop, they didn't worry about the, like if their portfolio did better, we did better. So there was a lot of trust built there, but, um, I think the more important question, I think the more important situation is, and I find this with a lot of sales teams and a lot of, uh, a lot of executive leadership is they are madly in love with their product and they don't, they don't go far enough to understanding what the business problem is like, and they can't state it in metrics, right? Like my product reduces EBITDA by makes your EBITDA better by 1% reliably. Now you've got the ear of a CFO who's in a private equity situation, right? But salespeople don't go far enough to really nail down what metric is this going to change that's going to make a business difference. Um, And when you do that, you know, like if I understand that my guy, my client's retirement goals or my pension funds goals are a particular thing and I can operate inside of parameters to get there and communicate those parameters. Now we're not talking about the happy little trade I made or how we're making trades or any of that. We're talking about how are we driving to that? And what does that mean for your kids going to college? What does that mean for you buying the house in Florida? You know, those are the things that they're hiring you for. They're not hiring you for your technology. They're not hiring you for the smart stock trades that you're going to make. They're hiring you for specific real life outcomes. 
Makes sense. Do you, do you find that people knew that? Like what you're describing to me is makes sense. But some people, I think if you sat down and you're like, what's your, what is your retirement goal? And they would say, <laughs> I to retire. And they, they don't, they, they have trouble putting a quantitative measure on it. Well, right. so I think that's true in any business. So let's let's look at your business. Who are, who are your customers? All right for us, enterprise it's enterprise uh, enterprise uh, operator, you know, enterprises who have an IT and operations focus, okay, capability. So when you talk enterprise, um, enterprises are made up of so many different components. So that means that you're probably. Mostly focus. It sounded to me like in IT and operations, but it we, has. We, we are we are selling entirely to the IT operations team. Yes. Uh, okay. And why do they buy from you? And some people don't even know. <laughs> Most people don't know why they're buying. It's, you know, you know this this is buy? this is this is. I mean, part of what we were talking about, you know, just before you joined with Joanne, part of what we've been doing. Um, is you know being more comfortable with the things that we do really well, and and not not trying to. There, there's a ton of stuff we can do, but but bare metal for us, bare metal is our core market differentiator. And so our customers who run their own infrastructure have bare metal. They need that to work better. And then the, uh, you, you should ask. You, you know, we'll quantify what that is. But the differentiator for us is. They are running their own, you know, they own infrastructure and that, you know, managing that process is is mission critical for the business um, and doing it better. You know, they come to us because they want to do a better job with that. Yeah, that's very on very, very simple terms. That's that's what it is. Yeah. So the questions are, what's your definition of better? And why? Like, who else cares about this? Is the CEO breathing down your neck? Um, are you, you know, I don't know your business well enough to ask the right questions, but usually, usually you have to ask the question why five times before you get, this is my rule of thumb. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's really annoying by the way, um, (laughs) not to, it's not annoying to your customer because it, it makes them really think that you're in business with them. Right. But it makes your whole company really nervous because you want to believe the first answer, but it's the first answer doesn't get you to what's driving the value of what you're offering. And when you get to that fifth why, it's probably going to have some kind of emotion associated with it. Uh, Fear, passion, very few is yours is probably not going to be super aspirational. Aspirational doesn't sell as well as problematic. Um, but you know, it's personal when, when somebody buy when somebody decides to go with a vendor, it's personal. If you lose your job because you're the wrong person, this emotional. So when you're like, well, why do you need to do that that way? Why does your CEO want it that way? Why, you know, I'm just asking these questions not to be confront confrontational, but let's make you, let's give you a better seat at the table. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I, and I think one of the things that's been most challenging for us and part of our transition as we grow is moving from the, this is cool tech, right? And it does all these cool things to, you know, these, these business outcomes, right. Improving reliability, you know, faster time to value, fewer operators running the same infrastructure, right. Very concrete, 
right? Those are those are um, you know we're, we're putting together KPIs that um, people can understand, right? From that perspective, um, and what I love, you know, one of the things I w- I've been working on is KPIs. Like we use the door metrics. I don't know if you're familiar. They're they're very straightforward. Like you know, CI/CD style, like how fast can you deploy code? What's your uptime, mean time to resolution? If there's a, if there's a problem, they're really good metrics. Um, but they all require you to have systems um, and measure them. And so they don't, me- there's a test I'm trying to apply to some of my KPIs that says the CIO can walk into a room and um, ask a question for somebody and get, you know, sort of, to, and to your point, to the emotional response of like, you know, the one, my favorite, my favorite at the moment is um, the software, the automation half-life for your company, which is if you've written automation and it's working today, how long of it not being exercised do you think you'll be able to go before you don't trust that automation anymore? Yeah. Right. And so, so you don't, you can sit down and, and go to a team and say, you know, all right, if you, if you have working code today and you didn't mess with it, how long would it keep working? And, and is it a week? Is it a month? Is it, you know, half a year? Is it a quarter? And, and people have sort of this gut feeling on it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then you can say, all right, let's, let's see, what does it take to improve that from most people actually sadly say a week? Uh, you know, what if we could get that to a month or a, year or a quarter? What would that, what difference would that make? Right. And how you, how you operate the, the business or what, what would that look like? Um, and can they quantify that? Um, they can quantify the fact that because their half-life is short, that means their operators are always chasing, um, chasing the internals. So they can quantify that if they if they are always updating and tweaking scripts and they're always working, you know, they're always sort of chasing that burden. And then that means they're they don't have time for higher level work. They're just it's it's just toil on maintenance. Um yeah. and so that that translate that does translate for them into um, a significant multiplier for their their operational benefit. Yeah. And um, you want to start to hypothesize about what that multiplier is. Yeah. And invalidate it, right? Because what's it like for these operators to be chasing all this garbage when the highest and best use of their time is something else? And they're looking for a company that's going to make good use of their talents, right? So there are a lot of really important business metrics and the things that you just told me. Um, And until somebody's like, crying or having an aha moment, <laughs> you, when you get to crying or having an aha moment, that's where the money is, right? Yeah. Because as soon as you get to that point and your line of business person is bought into that, then budget sh- magically shows up and procurement becomes no problem. And enterprise procurement processes are insane. But if you've got a business owner that's like, well. yep. that they just say, hey, procurement, figure it out. And then you've got all the leverage. It goes really fast. But it, but I think people really don't dig into what does this actually mean? You know, and what your job is, is to bring these rational thoughts 
but remember that people make decisions from really irrational places, that they just want to believe that the irrational place that they're making it from has some rationale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, we do this, we do something similar, but we do it around value metrics because at the top CIO is basing on value. How much value are you returning to me in operators chasing old scripts and rewriting them and everything else to Rob's perspective is that means I have that many less apps that I can deliver to the business that's all over me in my transformation scheme, which the CEO is reaching down and smacking me for regularly, (laughs) which the business guys are giving me grief for every time I turn around, et cetera. So we may not have aligned financial metrics because not everything comes into a financial quotient for transformation, but certainly beyond equipment and asset management and stuff like that on value delivery, a hundred percent. And that's what it's always why. Do you, do you come back, do you come back and look at like giving a quantifiable rate of return or ROI on, on some of that? Yeah, we can do ROI or IRR. And IRR tends to be our favorite metric because that way you can actually put it next to a KOR. So your well, KPIs and KORs um, in terms of people, the internal rate of return on something can be the multiplier effect that you're looking for. And eventually it does translate from value into internal rate of return. So the value of the FTEs uh, of a person's contribution can actually be measured in in a financial number. So you may be paying them X, but they're delivering Y versus Y amount of value. So when you start looking at things that way, it's not about suddenly somebody turning around and saying, oh, well, then we can get rid of staff. They're going, no, we want more productive staff like this. So we'll add on new skills. That's when budgets for upskilling come in. That's where budgets for moving money from CapEx to OpEx to make it more available and not have you jump through 55 hoops on the procurement process. I mean, procurement was my enemy. When I was a CIO, it was like, oh my God, you know, like we can give you everything that you want to satisfy your criteria of risk. We can give you everything you want to satisfy your criteria for bottom line savings, you know, how much we can get the software for. But if you're going to take 18 weeks to make the decision, the vendor will have blown us off a long time ago. We'll be back to square zero and it won't get into the budget for the quarter, which means it won't be carried forward into next year either. Right. And that's the whole enterprise thing that you have to kind of navigate around. Because these are not in in the world of manufacturing, you're not spending a million, you're spending 25 million or 30 million on software. But but enterprises, enterprises throw money away like it's freaking water, right? So sometimes figuring out what that value is. So for instance, let's take Nike. I could be, uh, there was a period of time, I think, where Nike was like, we're going to be the number one tennis shoe by sales and we're going to beat out Adidas. And it was like, no matter what, it's like, we'll trade our queen, we'll trade our bishops, we'll trade our knights, as long as we get to that. So if you came in and you started talking about legacy ROI or anything like that, 
you're like, look, this will move the needle on you getting to being the number one tennis shoe. So you kind of need to know what's their like, and and these cloud, these cloud transformation companies, oh my God, if they're, they're going to be eaten alive by cloud natives, if they don't figure it out and there's like, we're going to go out of business. There's shame in that. There's, do you know, like, yes, business, it feels really nice to know that you made an ROI, but that's what I'm talking about is there's an irrational thing underneath there that can be rationalized by having an ROI, but that's not usually the driver of the, of the no. problem. Right. No, it's, it's about value. It's about what value that person wants for themselves, for their Number group one. or their organization. Being at the table with the CEO, getting another job. A lot of the people that you're talking to are not committed to staying where they are. They they may not want to do what you can bring to them because they're jockeying for another job somewhere else. I mean, resume resume driven development. It's in the, yeah. in the <laughs> Kubernetes space. That is that is a key. There 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 is without a doubt an element of people bringing the hot tech. Kubernetes being the current. Um, into an organization because they know that they're gonna they're gonna improve their their job prospects on it. Yeah. yeah, and they know that their lifespan will also be eighteen to twenty four months in that job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually have I, I started a table. CISOs, it's thirty months. CIOs, it's forty seven months. CFOs, five well, years. Expected. Okay. CEOs, well, you're either, if you're still there after two years, you're doing well. You know, because there's <laughs> so much, that's there's what so I call much the reorg pressure. Half, the reorg half-life is the uh, the, jo- the metric we use for, because um, even if you, even if you are, people don't leave, there's still, reorgs cause so much churn in organizations and reprioritization. Um Yeah. We we have we had a lot of deals where we had great champions. We were moving forward, and then there was a reorg, and the new decide you know you either restart with the new leadership or you're um, yeah you're all you're all over the map. Um, and so so you have to part of what you need to be able to do is one get into a into a positive ROI. Right? For us, you get to a pilot. Pilot's <laughs> going to start demonstrating ROI, but. You need to be in production and generating that positive ROI for companies before, in between, but, but within the reorg windows um, for it. it that's a, it's interesting because we're talking about time to decision. Some of the mm-hmm. time to decision is, is actually understanding your, your organization's reorg window or leadership churn windows. Mm-hmm. Um, God. Yeah. Delays are just waiting that out. Yeah, go ahead. This is why it's super important to be what I call multi, I didn't point this, multi-threaded in an organization. Mm -hmm. So like for for instance, I I sold in I sold I sell tech into enterprise in my last role. I was uh, selling to Emerson Electric and I'd made the case with my champion how it impacted marketing, human resources, uh, tech. And I had every C except for the CEO at the table and talking about how what we were doing was impacting what they were doing. So even if somebody dropped out, there was still so much uh, gravity to other people being bought in that that wasn't going to matter. Right. And then when Mm -hmm. I was going through procurement, they're like, 
oh, we want to do a POC, a proof of concept for 10%. I'm like, it's not going to work unless you do it across the entire enterprise. And they're like, well, that's what they're requiring of us. I'm like, well, I'm sorry that I may have, (laughs) if there's anything that I ever said that indicated that I could do that, I deeply apologize and (laughs) mea culpa. And if you can't make the investment, no problem. And they came back and they paid full price. Yeah. Because it's called the theory of interconnectedness. Aha. It has a name. It has a name. Uh, you even have, you know, some big name people besides me who talk about this, but the interconnectedness of organizations, and this plays into your point, Rob, on operations. The dependencies, the codependencies, and the interconnectedness of operators and operators' time to dev, Mm -hmm. to business, to the organization, to its positioning, to its go-forward position in the marketplace in times Mm -hmm. of uncertainty. It also plays into resilience. And so uh, hopefully today, maybe not today, um, the title is... It's a six-parter. I'm just wow. looking at the title. It is uh, a synergistic approach to industry four. And it talks about creating the synergies of interconnectedness wow. and what interconnectedness really means and how you can start leveraging projects together to get a faster time to value for your customer. Because faster time to value, they understand. And even if you don't have a financial right. metric, you can use an EVA, an earned value metric, you can use IRR, or you can just use time. You can make decisions faster because you'll have more available data and you don't have to go buy a new server to get that before you even start because we can get you that bare metal setup in a heartbeat. So you no longer, you've taken the dependency away, you've taken the risk away, and you've taken the cost because you can get it for cheapest price possible when it's available, not last minute. You can and then make the all next sorts of question, that. Yeah. The next yep. question after what Joanne just said is, so if you don't work with me, what are you going to do about this problem? And every time you ask an important question like that, you just be quiet. I've I've actually been quiet. I I counted. I watched it on a clock for two and a half minutes. And it's really crazy. But if you say, if you're not going to work with me, what are you going to do about this? If we didn't exist and and then you just be quiet and because they haven't thought that thought yet. So give them a minute to think about it. They'll come back and they'll answer and they'll either be like, I have no idea. Or, well, I've been considering this option. And when you say, when they say I've been considering this option, you're like, oh, what do you like about that option? And then they tell you, and then you're like, oh, what are the gaps in that option? And then all of a sudden they're yours. You're back. Yeah. No, those are, those are sales techniques that take a lot of guts to to pull in. Right. But are, are really, really valuable. Right. Just like being being willing to walk away from walk walk away, I, and it's funny because we're talking about making decisions. But one of the, the decisions that people you know are reluctant to make is no or walk away from the from this. Right? We and I think you're right. 
every every leader making a decision has, should should be able to answer the we don't do it question. Um, one of, one of my favorite techniques along those lines when when people are looking at that, um, I like to have a five decision matrix. So a lot of people will be like, okay, you can you you should have three choices in in making a decision for something, and like. And that I think that's good, but I always like to add, um, force people to add two more. There's there's the walk away, do you know, walk away option that people don't like to put on the table, but always is always there. And then there's the um, go crazy full in option that people don't typically look at. And so when I look at the when I guess when people put three options on the table, I'll often add in the two extremes, so that you're not because what what the challenge of, of a three option decision is that people are bracketed on, on the first and second options. And um, thanks, Klaus. Um, people get bracketed on those first two options and they end up in the third option every time. Um, That's brilliant. Right. So you, you, you have to unbracket people. That's so, awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. So what, so the two extremes. So if I take yeah. Diana's, point and it's like well if you don't work with us what do you what are you going to do then right so give me the five options um so i mean if let's let's flip it around to the um i'm the buyer i'm the i'm the person yep. in the enterprise okay yep. and and yep. i'm trying to sell rack end to my boss mm -hmm. from that perspective right um the, the easy three options are like um, we're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna use a competitor, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're actually the, the simplest option is we're gonna keep what we're gonna keep what we do, right? The next one would be maybe we're gonna use a competitor who doesn't have all the features, but it's cheaper. And then the third would be we're gonna use Rackend, but it's more expensive. Let's let's take those mm -hmm. as the the choices. So there's there's no right. That's an honest internal matrix of of, of choices, right? But they're do nothing is actually like, well, wait a minute, there's an option below the uh, keep what you've got, which is just shut it all down and maybe move to cloud. Yeah. So so you could say, you know what, actually, okay. it's not it's, it's not just whether we keep our current systems, you know, we actually have an option to just shut everything down and move somewhere else. It might not be cheaper, but it's it's a more extreme option than than do nothing. Mm -hmm. And then on on the other side, actually, it's funny because that could be the option on the other side also. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not giving you a good right. So the the other, um, actually, no. The the an option above would be to say, you know what, I don't want to run this stuff. We're going to find a company that wants to run it all for us. So we're so we're giving up. We're right, right. So we've got three options to keep us in control. We've got an option that gives up the data center. We've got an option that. You know, we lose our we lose our jobs too, but they're they're we've kept the equipment. Um, mm. And I guess you just sometimes you can flip options the zero what I call the zero and the four. Options. So I think that what Rob, what I heard that you're talking about is in business we're taught to sort of t-shirt size our uh, offering, which mm. is like you can do this with us. This is option one. This is small, medium, and large. Um, so what I heard was if I have, if I am straightforward with my customer and I'm like, you know, we, we can do one, we can do option two, we can do option three, but then there's also 
you can walk away from this whole thing and do nothing. Or there's, you know, we go all in and become really strategic about this and form a larger picture, even above our option three. Um, That's what I heard as my aha for working with uh, as a salesperson. But um, Mm -hmm. that's really interesting that Joanne, you saw it the other way. So I love that. Because I mean, I, I use something different. My, my answer is, well, if you don't want to go with us, or, or if, if I hear a suggestion of, well, we're going to go to McKinsey for that, or we'll go to Gartner for that. Yeah. And my answer is, that's unfortunate. <laughs> to which I usually get, well, that's kind of arrogant. And I'm like, well, no, here's why it's unfortunate. It's going to cost you more, take you longer, blah, 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 blah. I have bullet points on all of right. those things. Um, if I If I work it the other way, to your perspective... Um, I, and I did this with somebody the other day, um, his answer was, well, why is it unfortunate? Because we would give you a much better deal if you go all in. Mm-hmm. That's a lot Which, of times people, people miss the, you know, they, they they're, don't they're see hesitant. the bigger picture. They're, they're too hesitant. No, that's a lot of the IT stuff that, that we deal with is the, Fear of disruption causes people to stick in status quo mm-hmm. and expensively in status status quo for a long time. We were selling into um, um, it would have been a, a you know ten thousand server account, so about a million dollar plus account. They were using um, uh, Foreman, no Cobbler at the time. Cobbler has no support. It's freaky. It's fragile. They had a whole bunch of engineers running around supporting it. Um, they weren't even current um, in this account. And you know, we're like, we can help you fix this whole problem and move you forward. And, and we had advocates for it. And at the end of the day, the business was like, we're nervous that you're a small company and we, you know, we might, we might end up not supported for it. And, and that, you know, that, and then just the risk of they're like, well, it's carrying out the thing that's busted is going to be too much risk. And this is, I think, exactly what we're talking through. We didn't do a good job helping them frame the forward benefits. It was just your stuff is falling apart. And people usually overestimate, you know, they, they're like, well, I can keep I can keep my thumb in the dike. Um, thumb in the dike is exactly the right analogy, because you're, when your thumb is in the dike, you can't go get help <laughs> repairing the dam. <laughs> you're stuck you're sitting there. Um, <laughs> actually, well, it's also... If you take this back a bit to the original time to decision discussion or mm-hmm. what I had spoken about previously, it's also about reducing time in the process, which is not so much friction oriented as it is process oriented. Right. If you have better data available to make a, a decision faster, then you speed up, you accelerate the process, which brings uh, lower risk and faster time to value. And so if I apply that to the business process side of sales, you could probably do the five, five decision thing earlier in your sales process, which also takes two of the whys away. Because interesting. the faster yeah. you get to root cause, why, you know, why do you want to use this? Well, do you have, I mean, a lot of times people will come up with answers like, 
or, or questions like, well, do you have a better, do you have a better way to do it? Yeah. As a matter of fact, we do. Here's the process and bang, 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 bang. And you've taken steps out of that process. And then you have, if I use the five decision, which is, I agree, it is a brilliant idea. Um, As opposed to the three, then it just gives me more room to, to build value propositions around why the approach you want them to take is, is the one. And you get them on the emotional side right then and there without having to go deeper and deeper and deeper to get to that emotion. Cause you're either pissing them off entirely, in which case the answer is like no goodbye, or they start thinking about it. And nine times out of 10, if I get no goodbye, not that I do it directly, but if I have gotten no goodbye, about three or four weeks later, I'll get a hello, this is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love it when people say no or get pissed off about something. <laughs> I love it because I know we're going to do business for full price. Yep. Or that's, up. Yeah. The margin so, so on I would, it's I would the do people who say no give you reasons what, you know, this is this is what. My sales training was that it just made me open my eyes is people who say no will get, you know, usually give you the reason they're saying no. And if you can overcome the objections, then, you know, they'll say yes, or you actually have learned something on the flip side, people who say yes to you, but don't right? they, they actually might be saying yes, just because they're trying to be nice and not let you not, not let you off the hook. So they're like, I don't know when I'm going to be able to, you know, it's like, yes, I love this. But yeah. they don't have any 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 go. You it, have I, got I try to, to avoid. This... I try to avoid doing that to people. No, no, um, no, no, no. You've got to get this book called um, "Never Split the Difference" by Chris Voss. That's right. Okay. He's the he is an FBI negotiator for hostages, and he teaches. Oh, I've heard about this book. Yeah, a, but there's this whole there's this one chapter, and he's like, business doesn't start to happen until somebody says no. He's and he just he mirrors what you said. The th- there are three yeses. There's the yes, get off my back. There's the yes, I want to stay in the conversation because I want more information, but I don't plan on doing business with you. And then there's the yes, that's the commitment. But no always means that's where the conversation really got started. But I'm going to push back on one thing because yeah. I believe that people do not like their objections being overcome. I don't want anybody to oh. overcome my objections. But I do want somebody to listen. So when somebody gives me an objection, I'm like, well, tell me more. What's that about? Like, how how does that impact you? What are we working through here? Um, Now, Mm. these are all theoretical until you're actually in the conversation. But um, I'm I'm in that chapter about no. And no is where they don't, they feel like they can open up to you about what's really going on because they've said no. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but it, so I need to get right. better. Has, that you have, you have to, you have to be a sincere listener from that perspective. If you're just like saying no to take notes to overcome their objections, and now you're going to then sell them. That's, that doesn't work. You're right. But you have to, you have to be like, okay, yeah, that's you said. No, that's fine. You know, a lot of times I'll be like, well, I'd love to hear about what you're, you know, why, you, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what could I learn? How could we do, you know, like, and a lot of times they'll, you're right. They'll be relieved because they didn't want to say no, you've accepted the no. And then you can have a conversation where like, okay, well, let me, 
been through. I've had this happen like with employees who wanted to quit. They're like, I quit. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's great. I'd, I'd love to hear why. I'm not going to convince you to stay. Um, and we have great a great conversation. They're like, well, if I gotten all this off my chest before, I might have been willing to stay. I'm like, oh well, too bad for you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Um, but they they end up much, you know. It does. It's a it's a nice relationship from that perspective. Um, I think I think no gives you the opportunity to say things like. So it seems like where we really got jammed. Just let me reflect back. Oh, to you. It I like Seems that. like where we got jammed up in this process is when we got to the price or it seems like where we got jammed up in the process is where we got to like, you didn't completely have confidence that Racken could deliver and the words that you're looking for, are, which would, you know, make you not want to move forward. And the words you're looking for are that's right. You're not looking for your right. You're right. You're screwed. If they say you're right, <laughs> you're right. You got it. But you can reflect if you can hypothesize with them, you know, it seems like we got to a point and then it go. It, tell me more about it. Then they'll, you're not trying to manipulate a, tell me more. Or, you know, it's right. like you, if you hypothesize first, they'll either validate by that's right. Or they'll say, well, no, it actually wasn't that it was this and such and such. You're like, oh, okay. So, and then you've got a place to go. And, you know, sometimes no is no. And I believe you oh. shouldn't chase the no. Like there's plenty, if, if there's not plenty of business out there for you, you shouldn't be in business. Right. Um, and, you know, walk away from that stuff. But I think this gives you an opportunity to, Rob, if you're at that place from late stage startup to being, a, as Joanne said, a real company, which I think you probably are already a real company. <laughs> but um, he knows that I mean that endearingly. I know it's it's, 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 a, it's a subject. It's like there, it's a subject of much decision, right? We've been profitable for years now. And people are like, you're not a startup if you're profitable. And I'm like, we're a startup until my product market fit is, um, you know, well understood to me. That's the difference. And ready to um, scale. And right, right. And ready to scale. Right. And that's, that was like, we had a, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We, but that's fine. Um, the, our team was like, you know, I think we have product market fit and I'm like, no, we will know when we have product market fit because we're not fighting to explain what we do to our customers, they will be like, oh, this is my problem. You solve that problem. Let's go through. And then we'll be dealing with all the other objectives, price or risk or, you know, all that's all that's but none of it's going to go away. But this, this impedance mismatch of, you know, I know I solved their problem, but they don't, they don't, we, we they don't, we don't, we don't connect. Once I have that, that's product market fit. And then you're, you know, I think it gets much easier. The objections become different. I think the hardest... The objections will definitely right. become different. <laughs> I think Kinda? the hardest thing to do, and I, I I, think you can be bold. This is an opportunity for you to be bold with your board, right? Mm. Of what do we want to be known for? And that's a really hard question. To, I, I asked this of a, of a group that's going to market now. I asked them a oh. year ago, what do you want to be known for? And they took a year to find out an answer. And now they can say it really succinctly and it's getting them the right customers. But I, and what are we willing to do for that? Like Jeff Bezos was like, hey, you guys don't look at the bottom line on Amazon because it's going to suck for a really long time because what we're going to be known for is, you know, the right. best customer service on the planet. 
Well, that's like, you know, the yeah. definition of position. Position is what people say when you're not in the room. <laughs> I don't even want to know what that is. No, means. it's true. It's true. Um, it, because it's what do, it, it's exactly that question. What do you want to be known for? Yeah. Right. I mean, somebody said this to me the other day and I was very taken aback by it because I hadn't heard it before. And there they said no. And, and I said, well, can you explain why? Like, is it cost? Is it, you know, offering? What is it? And they said, you're not Gartner. And I said, but we all used to be. And he goes, <laughs> that doesn't count. You don't have the cachet. And that's a really hard one to fight against. Yeah. And I said, no. We don't need the cachet and you don't need the extra cost, do you? <laughs> what they say? And he thought about it and he said, let me think on that. And then I got an email about two hours later saying, you're right and you're wrong. The name okay. of the brand does count. That's where you're wrong. And you're right. We don't need the extra expense and we are getting better brain power. I said, well, then make your choice. And that's still up in the air. So, so how was that that you weren't in the room? That's I, I'm interested to connect that. What did, what did you mean? Oh, um, because he got to us through somebody we had already been doing business with for a long time through IBM, okay. and ah. um, and they speak extremely highly of you, and even smaller companies speak extremely you know highly of you, gotcha. your reputation, your depth, your breadth. Blah, 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 blah. That, that's social line. proof. Well, I don't consider that social proof because it's not in oh. like social media proof. To me, okay. that's the definition of position because you're in the position. That's what people say about you when you're not in the room. That's what you want to be known for. That's what you want people to say about you when you're not in the midst of the negotiation. Oh, I know you guys. You guys are known for foresight. You're also known for discretion. So, you know, those are words that resonate to me but that's an objection that's really hard to counter of course not you know how could we <laughs> we don't have six thousand people around the world four thousand five hundred of which are salespeople. yeah no and that's i that those are some of the work we're doing with the pinnacle stuff which i, yeah. I find really powerful is one of miss you know we we sat down and spent a half day on mission and you know our our big goal for a 10-year goal even though, right, you know, the company might be acquired and somewhere it's owned by somebody else in 10 years, we're like, we're like, but what our mission is in doing this stuff is going to be consistent, right? Somebody's buying that mission even more than the tech. Um, but, but so those are, those are important. And then also leaning into the subjects like, yeah, we don't spend a lot of money for you on branding. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not going to, you're not buying somebody who cares more about the polishing their brand and, and their logo than, than, uh, than on the results that they're giving you. Well, there's not, a not different... speaking about anyone in particular. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I get that. But by the same token, to, like to me, branding and positioning are two different things, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Because. Definitely. If it's, definitely, if it's the different. stuff that you want people to talk about you when you're not there, that's how you generate the credibility and the authenticity so that when you are there, people instantly recognize. 
over a long term. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. one of the strangest things was when I put out that little piece about the Mesa board. I heard from three former bosses of mine, two of whom I haven't spoken to in over 20 years. And I'm like, voices from the past coming back to haunt me again. Oh, God, you know, like, what do I do with this? But by the same token, it was very nice. It was nice to have the recognition. It wasn't if for no other reason than you're still keeping tabs on me 20 years later. That's what I mean when I talk about position you want to you want to be known for certain things yeah. to your question particularly right what do you want to be known for agreed this it's is part of like one of the reasons legacy. for us that you know i've been downplaying our bare metal pieces for a while focusing on infrastructure as code which is architecturally critical for what we deliver but right um in the last six months we, we've really come back to nobody does that better we have a reputation for it um and and you know leaned into it in a way that I hadn't wanted to before. I was worried it was too limiting, but got over that. Um, I have a, an gross. interesting an interesting note. Um, just as from a book recommendation perspective, um, if y'all haven't read uh, Dan Aries' um, Predictably Irrational, ah, I've heard about it. I have not read it. Oh my god, it's it's for what we're talking about. It is it is one of my it's still one of my favorite books. Um, it's funny. It's a, it's a little bit irreverent, but he talks about all these times when people's human decision making kicks in over their rational behavior. Um, and I'll mm-hmm. give you I'll give you a, an example from the book that is that I use all the time. Um, he did price and triangulation. He actually has a chapter on also, which is really good, which is why you need the five options, not the three. But um, the they did an experiment where they were they had um uh um table selling chocolates was in a college in a college uh, uh, he goes he teaches at my alma mater so i know exactly where they set the table up but they, <laughs> they had a, a table selling hershey's chocolates and godiva chocolates as part of this experiment and they would change the prices of the respective chocolates to see because everybody knows the godiva is better than the hershey's and so that was their right. And so what they would do is they would they could index the pricing to see when people would would pay for each type of chocolate. So if they and and consistently people were willing to pay a higher margin, this is what they could experiment. They could set the prices the same and people would all take the Godiva chocolate and rarely the Hershey's. As they increase the prices, they could see the cutoff threshold where how much more were people willing? When did people say, you know, that's too expensive? I'm going to switch. He does all sorts of experiments like this. But, but, which is so fascinating. But there's an exception to the rule. If the Hershey's is free, people will take it regardless of what you price the Godiva at. So what? people have a psychological. They they would they would pay a dollar more for a Godiva chocolate than a Hershey's chocolate if you're charging ten cents and a dollar ten or a dollar ten cents and a, and a dollar they would happily pay that delta, but if you made the Hershey's free and the Godiva ten cents people will even though it's an incredibly good deal to get that Godiva chocolate they will not take it because the other one option is free, and it it is a an irrational 
right? From a from a more economics perspective, ten cent Godiva chocolates is an incredible deal, but the free the free allure of free completely wipes out any economic thinking that people have. But do you know why? Why? Because if it's a brand that you know, you trust, even though it's free is the come on, mm. but it's the brand that you know and trust. Godiva, to a lot of people, is still an unknown brand. No matter how big they are. But it'd be, it'd be interesting for them, for them to present yeah, a, a third option. And it, this, this book is, is full of stuff like that. And he actually does the, you know, a whole bunch of psychology around, around these behaviors. But he sets up all these crazy, crazy experiments um, to test these, these when people's you know, um, rational behavior is, goes out the window. And you'll, you'll, considering this conversation, y'all will love it. I'm buying oh, sure. it right now. Cool. Um, before we go, uh, yeah. I wasn't here last week because I had a vet thing. Um, but yeah. did we do the book club we last that. week? I, no, uh, we, we didn't, didn't have it last week. When yeah, is Investments we, uh, Unlimited? Investments Unlimited is not not full not till the fall. So oh. in our schedule. Yeah, no, we've the summer we're doing um no, we're doing summer is investments unlimited, but it's not I haven't scheduled it yet. Okay, don't schedule it for next week because I'll be in Serbia. <laughs> uh no, I have it actually I have it as July 13th. Oh, perfect. I'll be here. That's I need to I need to invite um I was just talking to one of the authors, uh John Willis. So I, I need to remember to invite him. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I think he'd be happily. I might just schedule and schedule his calendar and tell him he's coming. I think I'll do that. <laughs> Excellent. All right, everybody, I do have to run. I got another Thank meeting. You. Thank you all. Fun Bye. conversation. Bye. Wow, what a great conversation. Really insightful. Uh, Diana uh, was speaking a lot more with her sales experience um, really coming through. Fantastic discussion. I hope you learned a lot from it. Got some good book recommendations. Um, and if you are uh, planning to join us for Investments Unlimited, we are discussing that on July 13th. Um, please read it and come. If you want to be part of these discussions, and I hope you do, uh, you can find out more at the 2030.cloud. Drop in, be part of the conversation. I am looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.